Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. People may be surprised, but I've watched a lot of vegan documentaries. I feel it's important to know the other side. They help me know what issues I need to address to the skeptics who still fear meat and saturated fat. Recently, the documentary The Game Changers was released on Netflix. It focuses on athletes who are able to thrive on a vegan diet. What were my thoughts on it? Well, I still have a podcast and blog called The Appropriate Omnivore. So obviously, I didn't exchange my ribeye for tofu. I'll get into more of my thoughts on it throughout the show. But first, I want to introduce my guest, Glenn Burrows. Glenn is currently developing an online platform called The Ethical Butcher, which will allow you to order pastured meats and wild game that can be traced to their origins. As he's in England, I'm going to call him via Skype at his house. Let's see if Glenn's there. Glenn, it's great to have you on the program. I'm glad you could fit it in with stirring up your platform and all. Thank you very much. Uh, very good to be here, and uh, thanks for reaching out and asking me to be on your show, Aaron. Yeah, so I like what you had written about the Game Changers on your Facebook feed for The Ethical Butcher, and we'll get into your thoughts about the Game Changers in a little bit. But first, I want to tell the viewers a little bit more about your program that you're working on called The Ethical Butcher. Okay, sure. It might be a good idea just to sort of give you a bit of a background on me. So oh, I, yes. I originally studied food science nutrition at university. And during the first year of my degree, there was uh, a bit of a health crisis in the UK. This was 1989 with a disease called BSE, which was uh, bovine spongiform encephalitis, I think it was called. Uh, there was a human version of this called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and it got renamed mad cow disease. Uh, and this disease was cross-mutating. It started as a disease in sheep called scrapie and had mutated into a cow disease. The fear was it would mutate into humans. And the reason this disease was mutating was there was a practice in abattoirs at the time when all the usable meat had been removed from a carcass. The remains of the carcass were put into spinning blades, spinning wire brushes that would remove every last scrap of protein. It was called mechanically reclaimed protein. And this protein was being compressed into pellets, which was turned into animal feed. And it was totally untraceable. Uh, it was cross species and it was being fed back to herbivorous animals. So you had cows, sheep, pigs, and chickens were eating the ground up remains of cows, sheep, pigs, and chickens. And everybody wondered why diseases were happening. I, at the time, thought this technique was abhorrent, totally against nature. And I became a vegetarian decided that this industry uh, didn't sort of fit what I thought we should be doing in the world. And also then as a vegetarian, I couldn't really be a part of that industry. It was a very different time, 1989. Uh, but the quality of food in the UK was pretty low. I sort of followed uh, my hobby, which was photography, into a career and sort of gravitated towards sport, health, fitness. Uh, last few years, I was the picture director for Men's Fitness Magazine in the UK, so I was very much working in that world. So all the time that I was working, I was meeting people who were interested in nutrition and health and fitness. And about six years ago, I uh, started eating meat again, and my health improved, my brain function improved, autoimmune issues and things like that just got better. Uh, I put on muscle, lost fat, all the kind of things that I thought I was doing quite well health-wise and realized that I could have been doing so much better when I adopted a more kind of paleo approach to eating. Um, so being an ex-vegetarian, obviously when I started eating meat, I was very conscious about the quality of it, the provenance of it. And uh, I was sort of looking for grass-fed meat, organic meat, trying to work out what it meant. and started to really kind of research again what I thought human diet should be and got back into the books a bit. By chance, I met the co-founder of The Ethical Butcher, just introduced by a mutual friend. He simply needed a filmmaking for a crowdfunding project. My co-founder, Farshad, he's a meat trader. So at the moment, his business is buying wholesale, selling to restaurants, acting as a middleman. And the poor guy, he's up all night. He's dealing with angry chefs at one end, delivery drivers at the other. So, you know, and then chasing invoices all day. So he was like, I need to change my business. I want to do something a bit better. I want to have a base, have a plant, have somewhere I can work out of, not just laptop and a van. Um, so wanted to crowdfund 
initially just to sell high quality meat. So as a filmmaker, I'm thinking, what can I do? How can I help him pull a better story out of this that we can, you know, try and get crowdfunded with? And I started asking him about provenance and where is he going to get this high quality meat that he wants to sell? Where is it going to come from? What's the difference going to be? And over the course of probably about a year, really, we kind of originally shredded his original business plan and wrote into it only selling pastured beef and grazing animals, pastured beef and lamb, 100% grass fed. Uh, we found various organizations that do certification um, for 100% pastured animals in the UK uh, and thought we were going to source from them. Then through this process, we discovered you can take this a lot further. You can go into holistic management. You can actually repair the land. You can be regenerative. And in the best case scenario, you can actually be carbon negative. So then that was another level of thinking, well, that's what we need to be. If we're calling ourselves the ethical butcher, the gold standard has to be that all of our farmers are actually regenerating the land, repairing soil, planting trees, replanting hedgerows, and actually increasing biodiversity. So that became the new remit for our sourcing. Um, and what the business is going to be is kind of using my skill set as a photographer and filmmaker. We're going to be a very content-led business. We're an online business, unfortunately, just serving the UK because we're shipping everything chilled, not frozen. And we're an e-commerce online brand, which will do next day delivery of the most ethical, most traceable meat you can possibly find unless you grow it yourself. Love it. With your background in sports and nutrition, obviously you have strong opinions about the game changers as that is the major focus of the documentary <laughs> is about athletes. And having, yeah, and having not eaten meat for 25 years and being, you know, an athlete of sorts myself and seeing how that changed my strength and recovery. So my sport's rock climbing, uh, which I've been doing for about 10 years. So pretty much in the middle point of that, I was vegetarian for the first half and meat eater for the second half. And uh, I'm now in my very late 40s and have sort of made more progress in the last three years than I did in the first six. It's been interesting to see that my changes in how I recover and how it's affected my strength and um, resilience. Right. So a very different story than we see of the people in the film. Overall, what was your reaction to Game Changers? My overall reaction is that it's an incredibly biased piece of propaganda. There is no other way of putting it. There is absolutely no balance to the film whatsoever. Um, it's been written for the lowest common denominator in terms of viewer intelligence, I think, because I've sat down and sort of thought, is this stuff really true? I watched the trailer first. And then just within a few minutes of Google searching had debunked the main premise of the film, or at least debunked the main reason for the main premise of the film. And the main premise of the film was following this MMA fighter, James Wilkes, who got injured. When he was injured, I think he had some ligament damage in his knees, sat down and thought he's going to learn about nutrition and came across a study which showed that most of the Roman gladiators were vegetarian. He then put two and two together and came up with a number of about 16 or 17 of saying, therefore, that is the best diet for strength. The bit that he didn't read, which is in the same study that he cited, was that the reason they were vegetarian is that they were mostly slaves. So they were fed a slave diet. Also, their captors knew that being fat meant that they could fight for longer. I mean, they're a bloodthirsty lot. This was blood sport. And when you have a thick layer of subcutaneous fat, you can take a blow from a sword and you don't die because you're hitting fewer blood vessels, fewer nerves and fewer muscles. The whole idea we have, this romanticized, idealized idea of the kind of ripped six-pack bodybuilder-looking gladiator is simply not the case. And you can even look at some of the images from the day and the way they were depicted correctly is i'm sure they were strong but they were chubby they were on a diet to make them chubby that's what they that was the intention and they weren't expected to live that long they really weren't so they were not fed prime premium diet um this was slavery for blood sport so to then turn around and say that's how i'm going to choose to live now i think is ridiculous i also did find out that i think james wilkes was a vegetarian or vegan a long time before he claims to have made this discovery so i think there's a lot of disingenuous information in the film where people have kind of filled in gaps and backtracked and it really really isn't hard to debunk it it was a, a vienna study team who did the study it was actually a harvard classics professor kathleen coleman who is affiliated with the university of vienna team sort of agreed that the notion of the gladiator diet was actually very, very carefully considered. Everyone wanted the best possible fight and they knew the link between diet performance and they wanted to fatten the gladiators up. Um, it was simply that they would live longer if they had a, a layer of fat to protect them. 
there was a high level of minerals in the bones, uh, which again, they say, oh, look, look, you can have like really strong bones if you're a vegan. Well, they actually showed in the same study, these guys were eating ashes from the fire and ground up dirt to get more minerals in their diet. It wasn't because this barley mash that they were eating was so full of calcium. They were eating fire ash to try and protect their bones. So if you think that's a good diet, <laughs> go for it. But you might want to throw some fire ash in with your barley gruel if you think that's um, a good way to live. That was even in the trailer. That was debunked with five minutes on Google to try and find the study that they were citing and just reading a bit further down the page. But the unfortunate thing is 99.9% .9 of the people that watch the film aren't going to do that. They'll just go, oh, wow. Oh, yeah, really? Okay, cool. Yeah, that's the problem with these kind of films is that most people don't dig beneath the surface. Also, yeah, obviously, James Cameron's put his name to the film. Uh, James Cameron, I think, is in the hole for $140 million. He's in a joint partnership with Verdient Foods, Inc., which makes starches, flowers, sweeteners out of grains, fruit and veg, and they are the biggest pea-based protein processing plant, um, half based in Saskatchewan, Canada, and in Nebraska. So you could say he's got something to gain from veganism. Uh, he's 140 million uh, invested into it. When I saw the trailer, I also did wonder about the accuracy of the Roman gladiators and what they ate, because I've seen that with other vegan documentaries that they will lie or stretch the truth of what it really is. Yeah. I didn't take the time actually to research it after, so I'm glad you did. And I guess you in some ways proved that a lot of people might not. Of course, I'm doing this podcast, so that was kind of my <laughs> research for it. <laughs> and it really wasn't that hard to find. You know, you really, really didn't have to go very deep to find it. And the other thing is, if we've got time, we can pretty much go through every single athlete who is listed in that film because I've done my research on pretty much all of them and all of the people involved who are either producers or executive producers. Everybody has an axe to grind, right? There's nobody coming at this with an impartiality. Yes. So obviously the glider part, that was a big part of it. That was the big thing in the trailer. Yes, I'd love to go through all the individual athletes and hear what their story really is. First of all, people might wonder why you and I even worried about this. Why are we giving it time? Why have I spent hours of my time researching a movie if we all think it's just nonsense? And I think the reason that you and I are both sitting here doing this is that we're actually angry because the information is wrong. It's misleading. And we're angry because it's probably going to lead to people's ill health. And, and that's my take on it. I'm not a conspiracy nut. If people want to believe in things, do things. But when it affects their health, when I think people are doing it for the wrong reasons, which is simply making money at the cost of people's health, that kind of winds me up. And I think that's probably exactly the situation you're in, right? Is Absolutely. There is a lot of misinformation which is leading us down a particular path which will lead to mass ill health if we're not careful. It's the bioavailability of nutrition that isn't the same. The thing that I really take objection to is people assuming that simply following one diet or another with no question about where you're sourcing those ingredients from is better or worse for the planet. And the world is so much more complicated than that. I'm sure you've referenced. So I don't like this kind of polarization. In the film, they refer to people as being plant-based or a meat eater. Well, plant-based isn't even really actually um, properly defined in the film. And if you look up plant-based, if you just Google the term plant-based, um, you, you will find a Wikipedia page. What is a plant-based diet? And it says it ranges from everything that is pure raw vegan through to somebody who eats mostly plants but smaller quantities of meat and fish and dairy. So in the film, they never define that. They're really careful not to use the word vegan. The terminology is very vague. And I think that's done for a lot of reasons. They're not claiming a lot of people in the film are vegan because a lot of them are not. Again, is it down to having a healthier diet or is it down to a lack of animal produce that's creating these performance gains? We can go through people a bit by bit. So James Cameron, we've already talked about. He's deep in it. Uh, Novak Djokovic, he's not vegan anymore. He tried it for a while. Wow. He, managed, he had some food allergies. He discovered that he was a bit gluten intolerant. I think a lot of people are dairy intolerant and when they become vegan their health improves they also often cut out a lot of junk food and go right i'm going to clean up my diet go vegan and they've just all they've done is cut out junk so yeah they feel better for a while no about Djokovic, he's not vegan anymore again it took minutes of googling to find is Novak Djokovic vegan not anymore he now eats some fish and eggs and blah 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger now this is the one i must admit kind of puzzles me because he's not vegan I recently watched uh, a film which was on 
uh, Men's Health US's YouTube dated the 10th of September this year, where he showed the viewer around his gym, where he works out, his gym in his home, and opened his fridge. <laughs> there was meat in there. And again, when you look at someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was Mr. Universe, right? All of his strength, all of his gains were made eating huge quantities of red meat, vast quantities of red meat, and he even talks about it in the film. He gives it the whole, oh, it's just marketing. No, it's not. Like, you ate large quantities of red meat to get to where you are. Now you're in your 70s and you're on a maintenance diet and you don't, maybe that's working for you, but he's not even vegan now. One of the other people in the film, Lewis Hamilton, uh, went vegan after watching Cowspiracy and again, has received an awful lot of flack for claiming that being vegan is saving the planet from ecological disaster when he has a carbon footprint, which is many thousands of times the average European person's. Something I find kind of interesting about him, which is a little bit controversial, but he's written some tweets and then deleted them. And one of them seemed to suggest that he's really actually suffering mentally. And whether it's linked to veganism or not, I don't know. But one of them said, honestly, I feel like giving up on everything, shut down completely. I mean, why even bother when the world is such a mess and people don't seem to care? I'm going to take a moment away to gather my thoughts. Thank you to those of you who give a damn about the world. That was a post he put on Instagram and then deleted. Uh, I think probably took some advice from people who know better. But he's backed a vegan fast food restaurant in London, which again, uh, he's received a lot of flack for claiming that people should go vegan for the planet when he's got a private jet. You know, he's burning fossil fuels like a thousand, you know, average European people. And I even read a story about him where he was uh, in Hong Kong for the Hong Kong Grand Prix and he was having veggie burgers flown in from Tokyo. I mean, that's a three and a half hour flight <laughs> so that he can save the planet by eating veggie burgers. I mean, the hypocrisy is, is ridiculous. It'll be interesting to see if his performance starts to drop off because he's at that kind of two year part now with his veganism. There's a guy called Tim Sheaf, who, who you may or may not know of. He was a very, very prominent, I think he won American Ninja. I think he was a, a free runner and he was a very pr prominent vegan poster boy. And he was originally shot for this film and his health suffered terribly uh, with veganism. And he started eating meat again. And obviously because of that was cut out of the film. Uh, and he claims that his uh, plant-based diet absolutely wrecked his health. Uh, and this guy had 175,000 subscribers uh, for following a strict vegan diet. Instead he felt like his health was on a steady decline. Um, and he decided to start eating animal products like salmon and eggs again and claimed to have had his first ejaculation in many, many months after eating uh, seafood. Yeah, so funnily enough, they cut his part of the film out and he didn't make the final cut. The main protagonist is James Wilkes. And again, he's not sort of a professional athlete, so there was no sort of talk about how his veganism was affecting him because he's not a sort of active MMA fighter anymore. But if we look at some of the others, there was a lot of talk about Nate Diaz versus uh, Conor McGregor, uh, the MMA fighters. Um, so for a start, Nate Diaz is not vegan. He says sometimes before a fight, he'll go raw vegan for a while to prepare for the fight. But the rest of the time, he eats fish and eggs. Yeah, he beat Conor McGregor. It's two omnivores in a fight. So what? Um, that proves absolutely nothing. And Conor McGregor, eats a ton of steak. He eats like two big steaks a day. And he's still one of the greatest athletes the UFC has ever seen, who's world champion in two different weight classes. So arguably has won an awful lot more than Nate Diaz, who happened to beat him once. So I don't really see how that's kind of a win point for, you know, for the vegan message. Um, looking at some of the others, Scott Jurek, the distance runner, incredible athlete. There's absolutely, you can't take that away from him. He's an, an amazing athlete. Uh, Appalachian Trail, he broke the record by three hours, I think, running at 46 days, eight hours and seven minutes in 2015, uh, long-term vegan. He got injured on the route, but I think a lot of people do. Um, but then, yeah, which is amazing, an amazing achievement. But then a guy called Carol Sabe, who is a Belgian dentist, beat his record by five days uh, eating bacon and eggs every day for breakfast. So again, yes, you have this guy who's an amazing athlete, but somebody who's a vegan, but somebody who's not vegan is better. What does that mean? It doesn't really mean anything. It's, you know, it's an individual. Uh, there's a lot of talk with Dotsie Bausch, the track cyclist, um, and she was somebody who had a terrible kind of anorexia and drug addiction and recovered from that by getting into cycling and, you know, cleaning her diet up.
she made most of her gains in her sport as an omnivore. Um, she went vegan, had a small window of high performance, uh, and then retired two years later. This is kind of a pattern that we see. So people become vegan, which usually means cleaning their diet up, cutting out the junk food, probably cutting out processed foods, cutting out a lot of fried foods and that kind of thing. There's a small window where the lack of inflammation or the lowered inflammation gives them a small performance gain, possibly weight loss as well. And then we usually see performance tailing off after that. Um, and that was seen with Kendrick Farris, uh, the weightlifter. He went vegan in 2014. Uh, he was well accomplished in two previous Olympics as an omnivore. Goes vegan, has a very slight personal best of two kilos, which happens to be a record. Um, but in 2008, he actually lifted more as a meat eater in a different weight class. Not long after becoming a vegan, uh, he became injured and stopped lifting. And then this year, he was guest speaker at the Salvation Army Steak and Burger Dinner. Um, so presumably, veganism didn't work out too well for him. Morgan Mitchell, the Australian sprinter, she was a 400-meter runner, the best in the country of Australia. Uh, went vegan, uh, again, small window of improved performance, cleaning her diet up, and then performance dropped off the scale and uh, to the point where uh, U.S. high school athletes were putting in a better 400-meter time than she was getting. She switched to 800 meters, um, and her performance has, has dropped off there. We kind of see this across the board. The guy who's in the film quite a bit, uh, Patrick Baboumian, the strongman, uh, he's, again somebody who built all of his strength eating meat and doing steroids. I mean, he got big through using steroids and eating an omnivorous diet. He sets this weird, slightly fake world record, which I couldn't quite work out what it was, but it was a very, very niche record in something. But uh, uh, one of the guys that I, was, um, I found who was, uh, when I was researching this, was like, what was the record? Said that that lift wouldn't have even qualified for the Arnold Strongman. Um, so it's okay. He, yeah, he's an amazing athlete. He's a big, strong, you know, a big, strong, strapping guy. And at the end of the day, if you look at a video of him, uh, what I eat in a day, he is just living on supplements. I mean, he is chugging more protein powders and BCAAs and creatine and all this kind of stuff, some of which isn't vegan, but he is throwing down huge amounts of supplements to meet the protein requirements that being a strong man has. So again, I don't really see what there is to be kind of taken away from that. Um, and I know nothing about American football because I'm, I'm in the UK, but there was the Tennessee Titans football team, which were looked at uh, and they were kind of having big dinners together and they're all going plant-based, whatever that means within the film. And I sort of tried to look up some of these guys. Uh, there was um, Darrell Tracy, um, Brian Arakpo, Ty Smith, Wesley Witter, Richard Matthews, Derek Morgan. I think there's only one of them who's still playing. Um, Richard Matthews, injured, left the NFL. Derek Morgan had an initial benefit in performance from cutting out junk food, now injured and retired. Uh, Wesley Witter is not starting for the first time since 2011. Ty Smith uh, in 2018 was injured on the reserve list. Um, and in 2019, I think he's had one tackle. He's not performing very well. Um, and Brian Arakpo, injured and now retired. I know that NFL, it's almost, you know, the injury rate is very, very high, but none of these guys are still playing. So you only have to look a year and a half on from when the film was made. And I couldn't find a single athlete. Maybe Scott Jurek is still performing at the same level, but even he isn't world-class anymore. So I really struggled to find a single athlete who is still making gains from being a vegan, which was said in this film. We're looking at some more of these. Bryant Jennings, heavyweight boxer. I don't know if you remember this section of the film, but... Um, he explains how he grew up on Popeyes. What is Popeyes? It's a fried chicken restaurant. Okay, fried chicken KFC. He even said in the film that he didn't even know what half the vegetables, what their names were when he gave up meat in 2012. Well, no shit. No <laughs> shit you're going to feel better if you're on a complete kind of total junk food diet and then you eat loads more vegetables. You're going to feel better. But again, in 2015, he lost his title, hasn't had a title fight since. He fought James Joyce and lost and is now... His performance briefly improved and since then has completely tanked. So there just seems to be this repeating pattern. They've taken a, a snapshot in time of people with terrible diets, cleaned their diets up, and they've had this brief period of increased performance. And then all of them have gone off the cliff. So I think what would have been more 
interesting would have been to take some of these people and said, see what happens with a clean omnivorous diet, a paleo diet versus a vegan diet, and then just see how that balances out. But it's completely ingenuous, just the way the information is being presented. Yes, and you talked about the NFL players in it, and with me being not just from the U.S., but also from the Midwest, where football's a really big thing, go Browns. <laughs> I hadn't heard of any of these athletes, and I think probably a lot of people wouldn't be familiar with them. And let's look at now who perhaps the most famous athlete is in the NFL, Tom Brady. He's still playing in his 40s. He won another Super Bowl last year, and reports that I've read say he eats somewhat of a Paleolithic diet. So there yeah, you go yeah, with a much exactly, more well-known yeah. player and he doesn't follow at all what these people are doing or we're doing. The thing is, I think what we have to remember is that can you live as a vegan? Yes, of course you can. Is it optimal? No, it's very, very difficult. Uh, for, I think particularly for an athlete. And there's a lot of bits in the film where they're talking about Dr. James Lunis makes the claim that all proteins are made in plants. But what he doesn't recognize when he said that all proteins are made in plants and all plants can contain complete proteins. Absolute BS, um, because it's all down to the ratios. Uh, I mean, most plants are very, very low in leucine and lysine, um, meaning you need a way more volume of plants to actually hit your essential amino acids. And the problem with that is that the volume of plants that you need also comes with a lot of other baggage, which is phytates and fiber and you know, all these like phytoestrogens and lectins and, you know, FODMAPs and other things that sort of, you know, negatively affect us and can create a lot of inflammation. So actually hitting your amino acids purely from plants, yes, it's possible, but it's just very difficult. And I think a lot of people don't manage it. Some of the doctors in the film, the bit that I found really bizarre was the nighttime erection section in the film. Yes. Well, uh, it was it Dr. Aaron Spitz, I think it was, who he even says this is not a scientific experiment. Right, and, uh, that part and, of and he, it. He, so like, what? It's purely for shock value. It's purely trying to prey on male insecurity or whatever. Um, and there are so many reasons why that study is nonsense. And the first, and why burritos as well? How, how strange. But um, And they're measuring the strength and length of erections. But the first night, these guys are going to bed with this, you know, medical apparatus strapped to their leg and around, you know, their junk. So probably not going to sleep very well that first night. And then maybe the second <laughs> night they're going to sleep a bit better. Good might point. have spiked the burritos with Viagra. Who knows what happened actually there. But, I mean, a really bizarre, non-scientific. And the other thing is, I don't know if you know this, but um, plant-based diets were known a very, very long time ago to decrease libido and testosterone, which is why... Um, Mr. Kellogg's invented the cornflakes yes. because he thought that it would cut down on impure thoughts and masturbation and all that kind of thing. And he was right, you know. <laughs> so plant-based, vegetable, grain-based diets were actually even known way back then to have this libido negative effect. So um, to actually put it in now saying one night of having, you know, a soy burrito, uh, it, it's just absolute nonsense. What else was going on? I forget who the doctor was. He then spun the guy's blood, and you could see the layer of fat in the blood. And it was really interesting. So, yeah, here's today's blood and here's, you know, yesterday's blood. And they just go, yeah, wow. Well, yeah, you have fat in your blood because your blood is the way that your body transports nutrition to the muscles. And fat is a macronutrient that can be used for energy. So it's complete nonsense to what... It, they even didn't say that one was bad. They just went, here's yesterday and here's today. And the guy's like, wow, um, take from that what you will. At least they actually have the sense not to try and claim that one was bad and one was good. But it's the way the film presents these two things where people will just assume that because you can see cloudy fat in blood plasma, that that's a negative thing. It clearly isn't. It's just your body's mechanism for transporting it around the body. I had very much the same reaction that you're having to a lot of the things that you bring up, especially the part where he says, this is not scientific. I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah. well then why did you even do it? If it's not scientific, I can't really take it seriously. And I also thought with a lot of it, like with the athletes, well, I thought it was anecdotal, but then with what you're saying to me, it's in some cases, it's not even that, that a lot of these people are off of the diet. And I've seen that a lot with people that have gone on vegan diets that they often then find it doesn't work and they go to a paleolithic diet. I remember yeah. once at a Wise Traditions conference, 
Denise Minger spoke, and she said, how many people here used to be vegan? And a lot of hands went up. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure. The people who end up on a you know paleo diet are usually people who are trying to find the truth, and they care. They care about the environment. They care about their health. I read a study uh, a while ago, and I think it was based on customers leaving Whole Foods stores in the U.S., and it was a very comprehensive study. It was thousands of people. And they were looking at the health markers of, because the problem with all these, a lot of vegan versus omnivore studies is that they go vegan meat eater. Well, no, omnivore, not omnivore is what it should be. Humans, I believe, thrive on a mixture of plants and animals in I different proportions so according to who you are, right? So I think some people uh, are swung in different directions to quite extreme levels, and it's up to you as an individual to find out what that is. Um, and I think genetics play a large part of it, gut bacteria play a large part of it, but we are omnivores. So vegans will never say that a person is an omnivore. They'll say you're a meat eater or you're a vegan. And it's this polarization. It's kind of one or the other thing, which I also take issue to as well. There wasn't one bit in this film where they talk about somebody as an omnivore. And, right. Um, I had you know, that they, they talk about too. all these things like beet juice. Do you remember the beet juice bit, right? They're saying, oh yeah, beet juice gives you a 19% better bench press absolute rubbish i mean even the best steroids that you could imagine wouldn't give you that that's absolute nonsense but then the other thing that i always thought at the end of hearing that was well yeah i'm an omnivore i can also eat beetroots if i want to they're not omitted from my diet because i also eat meat that's the sort of other kind of crucial part of this is as an omnivore you have the best of all of this I think in general, what happens to people, a lot of people who go vegan is they get a massively reduced uh, protein intake when they first go vegan. And I think what that causes is a, a period of time where they experience uh, a cellular cleansing process called autophagy. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's, it's what happens when you fast. When you do an extended fast, it's sort of 18 hours plus, your body starts scavenging proteins and amino acids and it starts using up precancerous cells, dead dying cells. It's a very kind of cleansing process. It's about the only way that I think as humans, we can actually induce a forced detoxification process is by protein fasting. I think various people have talked about the importance of protein fasting, whether you think he's a charlatan or a genius, but Dave Asprey, for example, a bulletproof guy, he said that one day every week or two, you should go for below 20 grams of protein and kickstart this process um, or at least fast and a lot of intermittent fasting. So I think a lot of people are on a really crappy diet. Their body's producing a lot of sick cells and a lot of mutations. They, you go vegan and you experience this cleansing and this clarity where you're burning and you're disassembling all of the bad bits of your, you know, the, the cells in your body, which are not healthy and putting together to make new ones. The problem is after that, then things start to kind of tail off and decline because your protein intake isn't high enough. There's a sort of three to six month period where people go, oh my God, I feel great. I feel so clear. I feel clean. I feel healthy. You know, my skin's better and everything's improving. Yeah, that's the time to go back to eating paleo and not stay with it, in my opinion. When you bring up the issue of fasting, because we do hear about that a lot, that's become a big thing, the intermittent fasting. And I think actually about the Mediterranean diet, because you do hear a lot of people bring that up about how the Mediterraneans ate healthy. And, oh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Because first off, there were many different Mediterranean diets that, as Denise Minger puts it, saying the Mediterranean diet is like saying the Beatles song. So there were some Mediterranean cultures that did actually eat a lot of meats and particularly yeah. ate organ meats. But also another thing about a lot of the Mediterranean cultures and the way they were able to be healthy was also because they did a lot of fasting. Exactly. Having been both, you know, eating a plant-based diet, vegetarian diet, and now sort of a whole paleo diet, when I was eating plants, when I was a you know, vegetarian, uh, most of my energy was coming from carbohydrates. Man, I couldn't go more than three hours without eating. I was hungry all the time. And if I didn't fuel properly, I'd get this like tunnel vision where my brain would just shut down uh, and I would need to be snacking constantly. And the biggest change for me of eating particularly like saturated animal fats is that I can miss meals. I can go 18 hours without eating. I sometimes forget to eat. And I've noticed that the more carbohydrates I have, the faster that turnover is, the more often I need to eat and the more up and down my energy is. I don't think I could have fasted as a vegetarian. I'd eaten the table. You know, I'd been so kind of crazy and hungry. Yeah, it's just simply down to, I think, the macronutrient ratio. So speaking of carbohydrates, you talked earlier 
about eating the burritos for that experiment in The Game Changers. And that was another thing that really bothered me was this whole focus on things such as burritos, which have this white flour tortilla, even though there was a part in the documentary that talked about the problem of eating white flour and sugar. And some of the people featured in this documentary, there are people such as Caldwell Esselstyn, Dean Ornish, who we've seen in the other vegan documentaries. And seeing them in the other ones, plus also listening to these other people, because it's always important to me to know what they're saying in order to debunk it. So I've listened to a lot of stuff they said, and they actually recommend cutting out a lot of processed foods. I mean, their thing is somewhat similar to paleo, other than they say cut out the meat as well. They're not big fans of things such as refined flour, sugar, and vegetable oils. Okay, at least they've got that. (laughs) Right. Right. So despite featuring them in the documentary, it seems like they're kind of not following a lot of what they said because they had people eating a lot of these fake meats and they talk about at the end how you can switch your meat for a fake meat. I was really shocked that they were trying to say that as a way to be healthy because I don't think that's true at all. And did you have that reaction too of why are they talking so much about fake meats in a documentary promoting health? I did. And again, I, th- I think there might be a part of that is linked to, you know, James Cameron. And, you know, it makes you wonder whether Impossible Foods or anyone else has anything to do with this. But I said at the very beginning, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do think there is an agenda with agribusiness kind of pushing veganism on the world because the system of farming that I've seen for starting the business that I'm involved in requires no inputs from industry. You know, the farms that I've been visiting for the ethical butcher have inputs that are sunlight and rainwater. And that is entirely outside. The cattle don't need medicine. They don't need worming. They don't need veterinary bills. They don't need um, antibiotics. They're not given growth hormones. The land doesn't require fertilizing because the animals do that. So there's a new system of farming emerging, which is totally outside of agribusiness. Whereas, you know, a lot of these plant-based foods are in the control of these huge corporations like huge, huge, huge corporations. They own the patents on the seeds. The seeds are often, you know, particularly with the GMO stuff, like, you know, the Impossible Burger, which some of that meat in the burritos is possibly like Impossible Mints or something, soy-based mints. Well, it's GMO soy. It's been modified to be glyphosate resistant so that the farmers can spray the fields with glyphosate that kills everything except for the soybeans. The soybeans are then holding glyphosate residues, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the point of it is not so much for health that it's reliant on industry it's reliant on continuous inputs which cost money if you want to take the conspiracy even further then it's also making people sick which is supporting the pharmaceutical industry i don't know quite if anyone's as devious as that but it's worth a passing thought i think particularly in the states where uh, healthcare is paid for and not part of a, the system like it is here it, it is possible that there is some sort of vested interest in people not being as healthy it was strange there was kind of very little emphasis put on the healthy food i mean the meal that showed the football players who were having that huge meal it looked like lasagna and stuff with fake cheese on it and junk you know it's processed food the ingredients that mimic animal-based products are highly processed foods and you can't get away from that vegan cheese it's highly processed vegan meats are highly processed foods i don't see how that can possibly be healthy Right. And I think the documentary also had a huge disconnect, like pretty much all vegan documentaries do in any time that vegans like to talk out against animal products, a huge disconnect between the grass-fed and pasture meats and the factory farm meats, because at the end of the documentary, they talk a little more about environment in it, switch from health, which in some ways I thought was a weird part of it, it almost didn't fit with the documentary. But when they talk about yeah. the whole issue of environment, they're, of course, talking about how factory farming has an effect on it. And they talk about the whole argument of we grow corn to feed the cows when you could just be feeding it to the humans. Well, one, humans shouldn't eat that much corn, but also the cows don't have <laughs> I would to actually agree with it. I'd agree with that one. That's probably the only thing in the film I'd agree with is you shouldn't grow crops right. uh, to feed the cows. Well, I, mean, I would yeah, agree with I that agree. too. <laughs> The corn actually isn't grown to feed the animals. It's actually that because of these subsidies of all the corn we have, there's an abundance of it, and that's what they use to feed the cows. I don't know much about the States, but I know we don't grow quite so much corn, but it's the substandard corn 
generally that's fed, which isn't fit for human consumption, which is fed to the cows as well. Some of the ways that towards the end, you mentioned in the film that they started talking about the environmental issues of meat. And I think it's worth going through some of those figures. Uh, they quoted that 80% of agricultural land is used for animal agriculture. Well, that's just not true. I mean, that is just that figure is simply not true. 80% of agricultural land is not suitable for growing crops. Uh, right. So what are you going to do with it? Well, particularly, you know, I think the Great Plains of America and a lot of the highland areas of the UK, they're not suitable for growing crops. And yet there is a mutualism between the grasses and grazing animals. That land needs to be grazed. Otherwise, that ecosystem will collapse. So we've got two choices there. We can either ignore that land and we have to grow more intensively. If we ignore that land and it doesn't produce food for humans, then we have to farm the farmable land more intensively to supply enough calories for humans. And then we have to keep animals on that land and manage them in a way that stops them overbreeding and overpopulating, that the balance is kept in check just to keep those ecosystems alive of, of these grasslands. So clearly it makes sense that we should actually take the role of the apex predator in that situation and use the protein and the fats that those animals can provide for us on land that can't grow um, arable. So that's just one little bit of this. Um, they also said, they, they talk about water, um, and I, I don't know, I've written quite a big piece that stirred up a little controversy on our Facebook page about water usage, and the figures quoted that it produces thousands of gallons of water to make one pound of beef. Well, do you know how that water is actually measured is what's called green water. Well, green water is the water that falls from the sky and lands on the land. So they're measuring water that is raining on the earth and saying that is used to make beef because the cow happens to be in that field. I mean, that's completely disingenuous. So what happens is, I mean, the cows are recycling that water. The vast majority of the water that those cows take in through drinking and eating is then put back on the land with added nutrition in it and it's breathed out and whatever. So it's only the water that's actually inside the animal for that period of time, which is being taken out of any sort of system. For every increase in soil carbon, I think for every acre of soil that doubles its carbon content it can hold you know 200,000 more gallons of water so you've got this kind of nonsense situation where this idea of green water being measured uh, the animals are using it um, the other thing is I think they mentioned 15% of all greenhouse gases are, are from animal agriculture they rounded it up I think the generally accepted figure is like 14 point something I think it was the previous film of Cowspiracy or What the Health that said it was 51% which is just a clear lie but even the 15% or the 14.7 or whatever you accept it to be that number was a life cycle assessment not a total assessment so what that means is when you're measuring animal agriculture, when you're measuring versus fossil fuels, what they've done is they've measured every single part of the entire system. So if the farmer has a tractor, they've measured the mining of the ore to make the steel, to make the trap. You know, they've measured the industrial process of building that tractor and of transporting the beef, every single tiny gram of carbon that could possibly be linked in any way to the life cycle of that farm. And then when they've measured it against transportation, it's simply what comes out of the exhaust pipe. There is no processing, there's no transportation, there's no mining, there's no digging, there's no extraction. The two aren't really comparable. If you were to do it in an isolation within a closed system, uh, the carbon from animal agriculture versus a closed system, the carbon, if you were to measure both things the same, it's down to 2% from cows. And that isn't even taken into account, the fact that cows can be kept in a way that can sequester more carbon than they produce. And and that's the sort of essence of our business is like, we actually need to keep cows in a way because we're not stopping using fossil fuels anytime soon. Um, so again, just complete misinformation, disingenuous. We could look at methane. Uh, methane has been proven now to not be increasing from cattle. NASA have looked at isotopes. They know that cattle haven't um, increased the amount of methane in the atmosphere. Methane has a very short life cycle. It's recycled every 10 years. Carbon from fossil fuels is thousands of years. So. All of this kind of, you know, the end bit of the film where they go, oh, and this, and the environment, and the planet, it's just nonsense. Both things, health and the environment. I'd say go back to the history of how we've eaten, in that we haven't eaten only plants for the history of time. So it wouldn't work to all of a sudden change it that way. It's similar with the environment. Nature isn't vegan. So the idea that somehow nature can thrive when we only grow plants, well, that concept won't work either. Like you were talking about, 
We need more of cattle ranching when done right because it sequesters the carbon. And when it's done right, you're able to use the water effectively. This is a reason why we should all be eating grass-fed beef. That leads me to my last question for you. This goes a little bit outside of the documentary, but from seeing Game Changers, it made me think about what I'm going to say now. When I first began blogging back in 2011, you didn't have Beyond Meat or the Impossible Burger. The next couple of years, I saw a huge growth in grass-fed beef being sold in stores, served in restaurants, and sold at farmer's markets. Products like Beyond Meat were introduced around five years ago. Since then, I've seen them taking off, and I don't know. From my end, I worry that these are getting more attention than grass-fed beef. How do you feel about that as you're starting up a business providing grass-fed and pastured meats? That is very interesting, and I think you're right, but I don't know if I'm in a bit of a bubble, but I do see a backlash coming um, already. Um, I can see that. I think the thing that these plants, like we talked at the very beginning about, Susie Amos Cameron and um, you know, and James Cameron, uh, 140 million in these two plants. These plants are vast to produce this plant-based protein you need a lot of money so when people put that kind of money into these things they're going to put a lot of money into the market and the agenda of pushing these plant-based diets and persuading people to move away from it so they are going to have some success because compared to the amount of money that people like my business has at the moment for marketing and for propaganda or for spreading information my resources are tiny compared to you know to someone like james cameron so there is going to be a blip. This is going to go big and people are going to take the easy message away from this. And the easy message is simple. Um, the planet's in distress. Your health is in distress. Um, you can solve both these problems by choosing this product over that product, right? So that's the very simple message. And a lot of people will try it and then a lot of people will suffer as a result and their health will suffer um, and they will come back. There was a big study done showed that 84% of people who try and become vegan will at some point revert back to being an omnivore. And in some ways, we see that as our future customers. Without wanting to be provocative, our business is kind of an ex-vegan support group. We're providing deep nutrition for people who care. You know, there will always be people who we won't reach because they just don't care. They're going to eat whatever. They're going to eat junk. They don't care about the environment. They don't care about animals. They're going to eat junk food. They're not our customers. But it's the people that have gone through this process. In some ways, I see it as a positive. I'm trying to see it as a positive. You got it, yeah, you've got it because people, although I'm trying to deal with it head on as a business, um, we do have to look at where people are coming from, particularly because I was there you know, and I thought that I was making the right moral decisions until I looked into things a bit deeper. So I think a lot of people will come full circle and actually become our customers. But I have to be careful not to insult them now. <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but to accept that they're reasoning is correct but their judgment is wrong you know that their, their thought process is right that you know everybody wants to be healthy cut down on junk food um, eat a better diet it's better for the planet but it's just the execution of that how does the execution of that happen and where's it come from i don't know if you know but we have a bit of a strange situation in the uk where the government department that looks after uh, food regulation is called defra which stands for department for rural and agricultural of food and agricultural affairs or something but there's um a document produced by DEFRA, which uh, dictates everything that you can and can't say about food, you know, uh, food labeling guidelines. And within this document, there's a line that simply says uh, meat can be labeled as grass fed if the diet of the animal was predominantly grass. So in an extreme environment, people in the UK, that could be 51 percent. So as you probably know, uh, cattle in the UK anyway, are sort of grown in um, a weaning phase and a finishing phase. So they're generally kept at calf with their mothers and they're kept in the field, they're eating grass for about the first sort of, you know, year to 18 months. And then they go to the next stage of their life, which is finishing. So an animal could go into a shed, be fed corn, soy, you know, everything else, GMO, whatever. And that could still be sold as grass fed meat legally in the UK, as long as 49% of its life was on feed and 51% was grass. So for that reason, we've got a bigger challenge here in that we're trying to tell people that grass-fed doesn't mean anything, organic doesn't mean a huge amount, free-range doesn't mean a huge amount. That's why we exist. We are setting the standard of the ethical butcher because the correct standards don't exist and people are not getting what they think they're paying for. Um, so we've got a terrible problem there. There's an awful lot of grass-fed meat being sold 
uh, where the butcher will look you in the face and say it's grass fed because that's what he was told from the person he bought it from and that's what the meat market told him. And legally, they're not lying, but factually they are. It's even worse in the U.S. because what grass-fed means is it was fed grass one day. So, for instance, as oh, holistic no, vet... No, no, no. Seriously, it's that bad. <laughs> I think that's what it is in the U.S., that there's some requirement grass-fed means fed grass one day. And holistic vet Will Winters, he says, well, I ate grass once, so I guess that means that I'm grass-fed. <laughs> and that's kind of why we're seeing now things that are labeled 100% grass-fed because right, okay, okay. grass-fed every so that, cow. So that's how you know in the U.S. is uh, the 100% bit at the beginning. Right, because okay. the thing with cows versus other animals, whereas chickens and pigs can sometimes start their beginning of the life at feedlot, all cows have to be on the grass part of the time. So essentially any cow is grass-fed, just some are moved to the feedlot Sooner Some are more grass fed than others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, we have an organization here called PFLA or Pasture Fed Livestock Association. And well, until we launch, the only way of knowing is to buy from one of the farms that's accredited by these guys. And at the moment, it's only about 80 farms, you know, so it's a small number. It represents about 1.5% of the beef raised in the UK is 100% grass fed. So we're working with these guys to source from them, but we're just trying to get more and more and more farms to see the benefit of it. We have a similar thing in the U.S. There's the American Grass-Fed Association, which that requires animals to be 100% grass-fed. And I think you're right that we will eventually see a backlash of this fake meat that they're pushing because I think it kind of goes, the saying is, what goes up must come down. So eventually we're going to see the reality of what these do. And I think a lot of these people who feel that because they're so afraid of saturated fat, of their cholesterol being high, that they're switching to Beyond Meat at the supermarket. But when they find out that they're putting on weight or they see other health problems, I think we're going to see that go down and we will see a return of more people looking for grass-fed beef. And that's where the ethical butcher will come in handy. So (laughs) before we go, why don't you tell the listeners where they can learn more information about the ethical butcher? Well, we're a couple of ways from launching yet, but uh, probably one of the best places to see kind of what we're talking about, where we stand for is initially just to look at our Facebook page, uh, social media. We are Ethical Butcher on Facebook. We're looking to launch towards the end of November. So about a month from this, we should be up and running, but we are ethicalbutcher.co.uk. When we launch that website, we'll also host an awful lot of content, of filmed content explaining what we do and as i mentioned to you briefly before every one of our major suppliers you can look at a film you can see the farmer you can see how the animals are kept and you can learn about each one of these amazing individuals these farmers the techniques they're using the trials that they're going through the ways that they're trying to improve the welfare of their animals the quality of the land and really just this sort of multi-generational thinking that's going on in kind of thinking decades ahead about how they're going to improve the environment, not take from it. Well, I look forward to seeing the development in the future of The Ethical Butcher. So, Glenn, it's been a pleasure having you here and talking about Thank the game changers, letting viewers know the reality of meat versus plants. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. You can visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com to hear past podcasts, see my articles and recipes from my podcast guests, and hear my podcast next month. <laughs>